Ok, parfait. I can tell you what everybody knows. If you have different kinds of ideas or projects, you typically prefer the most simple one, right? Because that's a, not only more satisfying from an aesthetical point of view, it is usually also the more powerful concept because it has the ability to expand much more and explain much more. Welcome to the Night Science Podcast, where we explore the untold story of the scientific creative process. We are your hosts. I'm Italian I. And I am Martin Lurcher. Nikolaus Rajewski studied physics, together with me actually, at the University of Cologne in Germany, where he also did his PhD in theoretical physics. After becoming a professor at NYU, which is coincidentally where Itai is now, he moved back to Germany, where he founded the Berlin Institute for Medical Systems Biology, a huge place specializing in, as you can guess, medical systems biology, that is understanding human health and disease from a focus not so much on the individual molecules, but on their interactions. So what you're saying, Martin, To paraphrase Leonard Cohen, first he took Manhattan. Yes, he tie. And then he took Berlin. <laughs> <laughs> so Nicholas's own research focuses on the role of RNA in gene regulation, where he's made a tremendous number of seminal discoveries that seek to understand the function of microRNAs. These are the short pieces of RNA that don't themselves code for proteins, but rather they regulate the expression of other genes. And Nicholas has worked out the mechanisms by which these microRNAs exert their function in animal cells. And more recently, he's also published on circular RNAs. These are, again, pieces of RNA that are covalently close together, and they are specifically expressed in particular tissues. More recently, Nicholas's lab uses single-cell methods, and he's undertaken some very bold projects, for example, one to reconstruct the entire lineage of an organism at the single-cell level. And this is a contribution that was featured as one of science's breakthrough of the year in 2018. Martin and I would definitely call Nicholas a night scientist because of his tremendous creativity And anyone that's ever talked to Nikolaus at a conference or elsewhere has immediately recognized this aspect of Nikolaus, which is one of the reasons we're particularly excited to talk to him today. Welcome, Nikolaus. Thanks very much for the very nice introduction. So it's great to have you here. To get started with our discussion of night signs, Nikolaus, you're in a medical research institute, but you're a physicist by training. Does that affect how you can be creative in that environment? Well, I think that um, bringing together different disciplines always creates space for creativity. And so I'm finding myself in a space which has these uh, opportunities. It's a little bit by design because I learned in New York that my passion is for bringing data science approaches and um, biochemistry and molecular biology together. And now in uh, Berlin, we have added heavily a medical component And so these things are coming out in various ways together, and that is a lot of fun. So you think that your perspective on data and maybe on models that you bring from physics is something that gives you a lot of power to explore stuff in medicine and biology? Is that how you see it? Maybe, yes, but I think actually in physics, when you study it, you learn a lot about how to think about concepts and to explore them. 
That's interesting because you talk about being a physicist because I read somewhere recently that if you look at the most original thinkers in any field, you'll always find a physicist there, <laughs> there in the center. So what is it, do you think, that comes with a physicist training that makes one so creative? Is it something about thinking about general principles? Is it something about being able to transcend fields? I think it's uh, the desire to discover some principles behind uh, things. I mean, you know, one of the first really physicists who said it explicitly was Isaac Newton, who said that for him, science was to make sense of things. And uh, that was about thinking about cause and consequence and trying to make this quantitative. And I think that's a desire that you pick up and expand when you study physics. I'm sure this is also the desire of many other natural scientists, but in, in physics, somehow, it is always very explicit. Actually, from my own experience, I would say in physics, basically what you learn is if you have a problem, you learn to reduce it to its absolute essential core, and then you systematically try to understand that core. And this reduction of problems into something that is solvable, I think that is something that you learn throughout your whole training as a physicist. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah, I think that's true. Yes. And actually in biology, you know, my biology colleagues, what they would often say would be, no, it's biology, it's complicated, you can't uh, reduce it, right? It's, it has this huge complexity. And, but it's just very hard to understand things from that perspective. Well, you know, I think that both sides really have their right to be discussed and uh, exist and to, to be explored. Because I think in biology, it becomes exceedingly difficult oftentimes to really cleanly talk about cause and consequence. With molecular biology, you get a mechanism to talk about cause and consequence, right? So the molecule binds to something and then something happens as a consequence of this. And so there must be recognition of a reason why this molecule was binding to a specific place or other molecule. And then there is an output of that interaction. And so that gives you an instrument to talk about cause and consequence in biological processes. And I think so that is very powerful. So this podcast is concerned with creativity in the natural sciences, especially in biology or, or medicine, or the area between biology and medicine in your case, I guess. Can you give us an example from your research where you remember there was a moment when a certain creativity was needed and either it was there immediately or it took you some time to get there and how that happened? I think we all know that the life of a scientist is on a daily basis just a series of things don't work out, right? I mean, <laughs> yeah. everything just fails. And <laughs> so it's very important to think about how to deal with this constant failing. But you asked me about the moments, the very rare moments when, when you have, let's say, some kind of that things make sense suddenly, right? Well, typically in our experience, those moments come right after a failure, or maybe not right after it, but sometime after it. So something fails and you don't understand why it fails, but then maybe at some point you figure it out. So, you know, I think failure and creativity is actually closely related. I mean, when something fails, that's when you have to be creative. That's right. And I think to me, these moments of some kind of insight came after a just very large number of <laughs> failures. <laughs> 
but then kind of to take the failure step back and, and then come back from another angle at the problem. By the way, this talking to friends about the science is also for me incredibly important. So it happened to me countless times that I was working on something and then I was talking to a colleague or a friend or somebody about it. And while talking about it, I suddenly understood much better what I was actually talking about. <laughs> yeah. And that's funny that you mentioned that because these days, Martin and I are also pondering the role that conversations with friends and colleagues plays in the creativity. And I wanted to ask you, does it a kind of sounding board that the friend represents to you? You know, in other words, the person is sort of listening attentively, but it's you yourself that is hearing yourself speak and, and you figure out the mistake, you figure out the insight, or is it actually a conversation where they make a suggestion? I think it's all of the above. When you put something in words, I think that's true for many human beings. It's something deeply human, actually. I think if you verbalize uh, something, you're somehow also putting it in some kind of order. And that is a thinking process, if you will, that happens somewhere deep down in the brain, which is just busy to produce something that other people can understand, right? So when you talk, you're actually trying to process the problem into something that is readable, understandable, and therefore somehow intellectually digested by others. So I think that even works when you talk to the white wall in your office. Right. It's as though there's two kinds of thinking. There's the proto-thinking, like wild thinking, and then there's language thinking, where you yes, try to exactly. compose it. Yeah. 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 And then there's you know the super important uh, for me at least uh, exchange with other colleagues, but also with non-colleagues trying to explain what I do or what really is the problem that I'm trying to figure out, and to try to really, for example, to really try to explain this to a person who is not an expert is an excruciating effort, of course, mm -hmm. but it sometimes helps me to really identify the absolute core points. That's maybe also what is instilled into you when you study physics to always kind of try hard to do this. But of course, I'm also dependent on colleagues who tell me that what I'm saying is just wrong or crazy or <laughs> they, mm -hmm. or they come up with much better ways of how to approach the problem. Yeah. So actually, from my own experience, it's also that when I talk to people in my lab about their projects, This is actually the time when I feel that, you know, I can, I should, I mean, I, I must be creative. So it's the time that I take to actually think about a problem. Whereas when I'm just sitting in my office and I'm reading email or I'm reading literature or I'm doing something, I often just don't take the time to think creatively about something. I think that's totally true for me and I'm sure it's true for basically everybody. Yeah, because I think when you're talking to someone, you adopt a particular attitude, which is an attitude of, I would call it like the scientific attitude, the true scientific attitude, which is to be open-minded, to be positive about a delicate new idea that has just been spoken, and this kind of attitude that uh, kind of nurtures a new idea. So Itai and I are, you know, have been thinking quite intensely about this dualism of what we would call day signs and night signs and so for me personally that meant that 
I'm much more conscious now about that distinction than I used to be. I mean, of course, we all do day signs and night signs, but maybe we don't distinguish these two modes. I can only say that it was always true for me that I knew that regularly get up from my desk and go take a walk or do something else, you know, step back to come back in a better way. That was something that I never maybe actively thought about it, but was always a natural instinct to do that. You know, going back to what you were saying about certain ways of thinking being instilled in you from your training, so many moons have passed since you were trained as a physicist, so many experiences you've had, so many fields, biology, medicine, so many things. I wonder if you think that training primes you in a way, you know, indoctrinates you, instills in you a certain aspect, and then that's it, it's frozen in you, like that's the way you must think, or if there's a kind of freedom and it changes over time. In other words, you still see yourself as the, the physicist that did their undergraduate training, or is that more or less irrelevant given everything else that's happened? I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> Because, you know, certain times people say, oh, you're thinking like a physicist, you're thinking like a computational computer scientist. And that seems to be frozen. Do people still say that to you, Itai? No. <laughs> yeah, I think that must have stopped for all of us. By the way, I remember that Eric Davidson once said to a colleague, I was present actually, he said, um, I'm not going to say the name, you think <laughs> like a bacterium. <laughs> <laughs> and was that supposed to be a compliment <laughs> i don't think so oh dear but you know if i understood how e coli was thinking i'd be a very happy man actually i think he meant something different you know it, yeah it, no of course, he, of course. He, he of course was aware that it could be taken as an offense and so he deliberately i think had that in this saying but i think what he really meant was that the way this person was thinking about gene regulation in animals, okay, in development, okay, <laughs> was kind of the way that gene expression is regulated in bacteria. And Davidson thought that this person was just had not understood the real problem of multicellular development and what kind of mechanisms you need to think about that are behind them. Yeah. I had a professor who passed away recently. His name is uh, Hans Kornberg. He actually worked with Hans Krebs together, and they figured out the Krebs cycle. And he said that a lot of people say that, oh, you know, we're humans, we're much smarter than bacteria. But what would make that a lot more impressive is if bacteria could at some point agree and say, yes, yes, you know what, you guys are smarter. <laughs> <laughs> but given that the situation is just uh, unidirectional. <laughs> I mean, you know, I would like to add that uh, Davidson, of course, was aware that what's happening molecularly in a bacteria is incredibly complex and difficult to understand uh, in the mm -hmm. end. Okay, so it was not that he was kind of belittling this. Uh, yeah, he yeah. was just saying it's different. There's a difference and there's a very interesting difference in what has happened uh, in the, uh, let's say, invention of multicellular animal life or plant life. And actually, just to add what Itai just quoted from his friend, you know, I think long after there's no vertebrates anymore on this planet, there's still going to be lots of bacteria. And, uh, <laughs> and they'll be discussing who was the cleverer <laughs> organism then, I think. If someone is to go, it is probably us. You know, Nikos, I want to ask you, do you think there's a kind of aesthetic element to the ideas that you like, pursue? 
other words, if an idea comes up, does it feel to you, oh, this one, maybe not for us. It's not, it's not a Rayevsky lab question. It's not, or in other ones, it could be like, oh, this one, there's some kind of flair about it. There's something about it that calls me. Do you know what I mean? I know what you mean, but I can tell you that, you know, what everybody knows, if you have different kinds of ideas or projects, you typically prefer the most simple one, right? Because mm. that's a, not only more satisfying from an aesthetical point of view, it is usually also the more powerful concept because it has the ability to expand much more and explain much more on so many assumptions. So it's clear. The other thing I can say is I take probably an extraordinary amount of time to present ideas or results in a way that it is really boiled down to the essentials and that it also, in this sense, is aesthetic. So I have, a, I don't know why, but I have a certain desire that it reaches this. It's maybe sometimes actually not important. You can maybe talk about the essentials and it doesn't need to look also aesthetic, but For me, somehow, if you manage to present it also aesthetically nicely, it is also some kind of thought process maybe that happens to really put things together in the most harmonious way. Would you say you do that for your own benefit? Yeah. Or Okay, so it's not so much just to have an easier tool to convince people that your idea is right. It's really just for your own Well, of course, I also know that it's easier to communicate this if it's like that. I can spend an ungodly amount of time to trying to, you know, how to push things around and simplify until I think it is really the essential thing that's shown. So as part of your answer, you said that those projects that are the simplest are the ones that you favor most. Yes. And I think that resonates with Itai and me Already a long time ago, we agreed that the coolest projects are those, or the coolest ideas are those that seem really simple once you explain them to someone, but that nobody had before. Right? So that's what we strive for. But what I'm wondering actually is whether that's just an aesthetics that appeals to physicists, right? or in, in Itai's case, a former computer scientist, or whether that's something that everyone in our field would agree on. What do you think? You know, Itai, you asked me this before, so uh, do I still feel like a, a physicist or, you know, or what about now the other fields and how people think uh -huh. there? I think one should not underestimate uh, this desire to really come up with fundamental, not only questions, <laughs> but also answers is, I think, is something common to many, many scientists. Of course, people have an immense joy to just fine-tune, uh, well, just is also difficult enough, but to, you know, proceed in a, in a certain direction, which is incredibly difficult, very complicated, but it's basically extending a little bit of what was there before. It's super important and so on. But of course, the dream of many of us is to ask some big, simple, new question, answer it, and then we have made a big jump. So I don't think this is really something that I would, yeah, it's just, I think, common ground. And I wanted to answer now, thinking a bit while we were talking, I think what I'm trying to do personally is to, and I'm enjoying this actually a lot, to learn from how my colleagues coming from other directions, what they have, how they think about, what are their approaches. I think I learned a lot from 
biochemistry and molecular biology, of course. And now in recent years, I think I'm learning a lot from collaborating more and more closely with clinicians. And, you know, they have their own universe there, which is very important and real and so on. I think I have a lot of fun to learn from these different approaches and interactions. Right. You know, I think this whole topic feeds into the larger issue, which is the role of intuition in choosing a problem and choosing a direction, because the scientific method has nothing to say what intuition you use to find a good problem. You know, you might talk to a colleague and the two of you could decide, oh my God, what a cool idea. We have the coolest idea. And you have your own sort of intuition and aesthetic judgments about why you think that's cool. But of course, that can't be evidence that it's true. You have to do the experiment. And more to what you were saying, if you're collaborating with clinicians or others in totally different fields, they might have their own very different intuition. And probably you run into cases where you cannot really agree on the direction to go in. Everybody thinks something else is so cool to pursue. Yeah, you know, I think intuition is incredibly important. And yes, it cannot read really how to do it. And I think there are some exceptions to this. And I think there's even science about this, how intuitive ideas emerge in, in which parts of the brain and so on. What in the end is really important to me is to just move forward in the sense of to learn how to think better maybe about the problems and to become better in choosing really the interesting problems and to communicate better and to work better with other colleagues. And so this learning process to me is something I'm really deeply enjoying. I can really tell you that. So... I actually read in preparation for our conversation that you also studied piano. So you're also a professional piano player. Is that right? Yeah. So that's quite impressive. But it's also interesting from this creativity point of view, because like you just said, music, of course, is something where creativity plays a very central role. So do you see any actual parallels between how you deal with music and how you deal with science? I mean, is there anything that you can transfer from the music world to your science world in terms of creativity? If you like playing music, then you can start to develop this desire to really bring out the essential points of the composition. I think in music, there are two parts. There's, of course, the way that the piece of music is constructed, And then there is what it expresses. And these two things, of course, are in a very intimate relationship. But in the end, what makes it really unique is what it expresses. And that is something very deep about, I think, human beings. If you do science, I think there's a methods part, the technological part, which is incredibly important and difficult and so on. But in the end, it's about understanding something about the nature of life and also you know these fundamental secrets of life i think are also intimately coupled to the way that the mechanisms are set up but if you just describe things that's not really it right so you want to really bring out what's holding this together or what's driving this what's inspiring this that's the best way i can explain what i think is what you can compare between the two 
I can tell you that for me, it's very deeply connected and I enjoy it tremendously. And, and by the way, there are countless colleagues, scientists who are also very, very serious musicians, particularly in mathematics, actually, and in the medical sciences, as I found out. Yeah, I noticed that myself, actually, both require to somehow transcend the physical representation of things, right? Like the, the musical notes in the case of music and maybe the equations or the data points in the sciences to somehow get to the essence of this. And maybe scientists and musicians enjoy this process of trying to get from one, from the surface, to the deeper truth underneath that. I hope so. <laughs> Nicolas, you've inspired me to take another look at how personality influences the creative method. And uh, I really enjoyed this discussion. Actually, there's another aspect of personality. Sorry to uh, ruin your last words. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, I think I can, at least in our institute, when I see students or postdocs, I can usually, of course, I know. But sometimes I don't know who they are. But I think I can usually guess from which lab they are. Uh, because I think there's also a very strong component in what kind of people are hired in a lab influenced by the personality of the PI. Yeah. Um, so it's... <laughs> That's funny. Do you test your prediction? Do you stand in the elevator and say, oh, you must be from Lab X? <laughs> and they say, why? Is it because I have uh, this shirt on? <laughs> yeah, no, no, shut up now. You tie <laughs> <laughs> No, no. Well, no. Thanks, Nikolaus. That was really great, the discussion. Yes. And I look forward to seeing you again as, as things continue to open up post-pandemic. It will happen. And a big hug to both of you. Okay, it was fun. Thank you. Right back. Thank you, Nicolas. <laughs>